Welcome to the Best Player Wins podcast, where we believe that winning is winning, no matter by how little or by how much. I'm Nate Endries, hosting alongside Jake Deemer, and today, welcome back for episode two of the Fantasy Baseball edition of Best Player Wins podcast. Jake and I are going to dive into the draft breakdown for most of today's episode, but we're also going to touch on our first week's matchups briefly, as well as just some injury news around the league to end the episode. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, Jake, I saw, I mean, I don't really know how you could break it down in more than three categories, but we typically, or we generally saw three main approaches being used in our draft this weekend. That being the, the managers that went pitching heavy, those that went hitter heavy or offense heavy, and then those that went with a balanced approach. Give me the managers that you felt kind of fit under that pitching heavy approach. Uh, so I was surprised that we didn't, I didn't think we had more of these. Um, I really thought that only you and Nick went really heavy after pitcher. Um, you stuck with the approach probably the far, you probably took it the farthest out of the two of you. Um, I think you picked in addition to keeping your four starters, you also took two with the first two picks and then three more before the 10th round, which included two keeper pitchers as well. Uh, Nick also went heavier after the pitching early following his first two picks. Um, and he actually got a very high upside staff inning for inning. I think he should stack up well, uh, but I do worry about how many innings he'll get out of those pitchers. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I'll actually touch on Nick's, the Nick's pitchers later this episode, but I actually did not have Nick as part of my group. And I suppose that, I mean, this whole conversation is subjective, right? Cause I didn't really necessarily use the same criteria for everyone. I, I had three people in that pitching heavy bucket. I had myself, you and big money, Mike. So for me, I just noted that I spent, and I did include keepers in these assessments. I spent seven of my first 10 picks on starting pitchers, getting uh, Max Scherzer, Clayton Kershaw, Lance Lynn, Kenta Maeda, Kevin Gosman, Sandy Alcantara, and Pablo Lopez. You, which this was no surprise, you know, the whole league knew that you were keeping four guys with your first five picks, but Worth noting, you spent four of your first five picks on starting pitchers and uh, definitely got a good ret- you know, return for where you got them, being that they were all keepers. Those were Jacob deGrom, Garrett Cole, Jack Flaherty, and Zach Gallen. And then Mike, he spent six of his... This one was a little bit looser, but I didn't want to just have two people in this bucket, uh, in that being you and I. So I put Mike in here. He spent six of his first 13 picks on starting pitchers. Actually, another two of those first 13 picks on relief pitchers. So not necessarily a starting pitching, starting pitching heavy approach, um, but just generally a pitching heavy approach. He got Walker Bueller, Brandon Woodruff, Max Fried, Marco Gonzalez, Marcus Stroman, Tristan McKenzie, James Karinchak, and Amir Garrett with, again, eight of his first 13 picks. Those guys all went to his team. Um, now on the flip side, Offense heavy approach. I, I think that these were kind of a little bit easier to pick out, but I'm curious to hear uh, which managers did you have under the offense heavy approach, Jake? Uh, so I, the two that really stood out, I guess there's three that really stood out were Courtney, Jordan, and Eddie all seemed to go pretty offense heavy. 
Um, all three of them, for the most part, I think sort of resisted the early pitcher run. I mean, I guess, I guess Eddie did pick Paddock and Luzardo, but he, he did. He, I don't think he picked another pitcher until the 10th round with Mackenzie Gore. Um, Courtney was able to, was able to get a couple studs right at the beginning. Same with, same with Jordan. Um, I had bomb in here too, but bomb was on auto pick. So I didn't want to really, uh, spend too much time discussing that because he wasn't actually the one picking his team. Um, but yeah, I, for Eddie, I really liked the, uh, the Josh Bell pick. Um, he is high upside with Stanton as well. I do think he's going to have to trade for starters though. Cause he is really pretty short on depth. Um, Jordan, I think got, I, lo- I love the Charlie Morton pick in the sixth round. Um, I, I had him in the same tier as a guy like Zach Grinke who went, I think three rounds earlier. And I also had him ahead of Chris Paddock and Lazardo, who went a couple who went earlier as well uh, for Courtney. I, think her keeper situation kind of allowed her to, to not have to worry about starting pitcher until I don't see. I think she picked her first pitcher or her first non-keeper pitcher in the ninth round. So I think that her, her keeper situation kind of allowed her to do that. Whereas with someone like Jordan who didn't have come in with a lot of starting pitcher keepers, he did have to sort of resist taking a, uh, taking a high upside starter early. Yeah. And you, and you touched on, everybody at least briefly that i had under this this umbrella as well the person that stood out first and foremost to me was brendan he spent seven of his first eight picks on hitters he ended up getting juan soto aaron judge Whit merrifield adalberto mondesi paul goldschmidt Juan moncada and austin meadows um with again seven of those first eight picks that he had you touched a lot on Courtney. She spent six of her first seven picks on hitters. She ended up getting, like you said, a lot of studs. She got Mike Trout, Alex Bregman, Trevor Story, Nick Castellanos, Ozzy Albies, and of course her probably most valuable keeper, Ronald Acuna Jr. Um, and then Jordan, you mentioned he needed pitching, but he was, I don't want to say able to resist the starting pitching run. He just kind of chose to because, again, we discussed on our first episode last week who's to say whether uh, avoiding a run of starting pitchers proves to be a good or a bad thing in the course of a draft. You just don't know. But he did, I guess, avoid that run and rather spent those picks on hitters. And again, with his first four picks, he got Jose Ramirez, DJ LeMahieu, George Springer, and Starling Marte. And then you didn't really touch on him, but Andrew uh, Baum was the last one that I had in this category. He spent, or I should say his auto pick, spent six of his first eight picks on hitters. He got Mookie Betts, JT Real Muto in the second round. I don't know that he would have went that early if somebody wasn't auto picking, but nonetheless, he went there. Also has Nelson Cruz, Javier Baez, Matt Chapman, and Jose Abreu. So those were the people that I noted. Um again, stood out from the rest in terms of how aggressively they attacked drafting offense. So I guess by default, if anybody was listening carefully, you would know who the rest of the people are that would fit into the balanced bucket for both Jake and I, but still Jake, I'm going to ask who did you have in the balanced approach bucket? Oh, so I, I had Mike, Sam, uh, I also had Jerwin and JC. So for Mike and Sam, they took their ace in the first round, which I, I was very surprised that or not, that uh, Sam took Aaron Nola. I, did, I honestly didn't see that coming. Um, but after they grabbed him, I know that um, 
they had, they had a pitcher in the third or fourth round. Sam had Grinky, uh, Mike had Woodruff. But after that, I think that they were able to really balance their approaches for the most part. Mike took a few pitchers later. He had a, he had a run where I think he, from the seventh to the 12th, where he either took a reliever or a starter. But I do like what he was what he was able to do. I thought he ended up balancing well, especially since he already had a couple of his starting positions in his lineup filled with some stud keepers anyway. So I don't think that he needed to draft. Uh, I don't think he needed much help early on offense with already having Tatis and Brian Hayes late. Uh, Sam was kind of on the other end where he had a couple pitchers and he was able to just kind of attack offense early uh, and then hit pitcher a little bit later um, for Brendan. I wasn't, I, I agree that he mostly attacked offense early, but I, I didn't include keepers in my assessment. I think that's where we kind of differed a little bit. So for me, I saw that he sort of balanced his picks because he did take, he did have a run of pitchers kind of as soon as he was able to get his, uh, his, as soon as he was able to actually draft again, because again, a lot of his keepers were early. Um, and, and, JC, other than the Barrios pick, uh, he attacked, looked like he attacked hitter pretty early. Um, he had mostly pitcher keepers. So he, again, he was another one where he could kind of focus on hitter, but he did, I do like that he grabbed a lot of high upside hitters. And I, I'm, I think we're going to touch on a few of the or high upside pitchers. Sorry. I think we're going to touch on the, a few of those a little bit later. Yeah. And, uh, just following up on your surprise that Sam took Aaron Nola. Oh man. I was hoping that he wasn't going to take him there because I knew from previous conversations with Mike that he valued Bueller even over both Aaron Nola and Lucas Giolito. So I knew that if Bu- I knew, Ju- I knew that Walker Bueller was going to last to Michael's pick. So what I was hoping was that either Giolito or Nola would also last to his pick because I knew that he was going to take Bueller over either of those two. So I knew that I would get either Nola or Giolito, whichever one kind of fell to Michael. Um, but Sam went ahead and crushed that dream that I had of starting with. I really had a pipe dream of starting with both Giolito and Nola. I don't know why I ever thought that that was going to be possible, but didn't yeah, get was, either of them. There was no chance. <laughs> yeah, didn't get either of them. Um, of course, with Jerwin sniping Giolito from all of us in the uh, keeper expansion draft. Teams that I had a lot of overlap, but in this balanced approach bucket, JC, he spent six of his first 12 picks on hitters, four on starting pitchers, and two on relievers. So even further than just splitting it up between hitting and pitching, he kind of spread it out to the main three areas of a roster, which are, again, offense, starting pitcher, and relief pitcher. Jerowin, he spent seven of his first 12 picks on hitters, four on starting pitchers, and one on a relief pitcher. Sam spent, again, or I should say the same, seven of his first 12 picks on hitters, three on starting pitchers, and two on relievers. So kind of taking a similar path to JC where he's given a little bit more love to relievers early on and kind of building out the balance of his team. And then I guess this is where you and I disagreed a little bit because you had Nick in the pitcher heavy approach and then Eddie in the hitter heavy approach. I actually have both of them in kind of the more balanced approach. Um, Maybe 
Eddie, I guess, would stick out to me more as, as belonging in the hitter-heavy approach bucket as opposed to the balanced approach. But Nick, I noted that he spent four of his first eight picks on hitters, and then the other four were on starting pitchers. So I thought that that was pretty balanced over, you know, in a vacuum. Eddie, on the other hand, spent seven of his first 11 on hitters. Um, so definitely, just like you mentioned earlier, he did attack hitting pretty aggressively. But he did spend three of those first 11 on starting pitchers and then one on a relief pitcher. So um, I think you can, again, pretty easily see who, who took kind of more aggressive approaches toward the draft. And you and I maybe differed a little bit, just like you said, when it came to factoring in keepers. I factored them in because I do think who you kept, what round you kept them at does play into like what your strategy for the draft was. Um, but I do like that you kind of remove them from the conversation because it's interesting to see if you take all the keepers out of the mix, like who just decided to hit what position heavy on players that were in the draft pool and not kept. So appreciate that perspective. Moving forward and kind of sticking with the same theme of the draft here, what was your most surprising takeaway, Jake? I was definitely that there was no prospect run. Uh, there were still prospects taken, but we did not have the middle round run of prospects like we did last year. Uh, I think part of it was that some prospects were already being kept, such as Kalenic, uh, Franco, Kirilov, and Andrew Vaughn. Uh, but we also didn't see guys who were more than one year away, like C.J. Abrams or Austin Martin, get taken around the 15th or, or even a little bit earlier like we had last year. Um there is one notable exception in the draft, but I, I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay. Um, and not to toot my own horn here, but I guess I'm tooting my own horn. I did just see today, I don't know if anybody follows RotoWire. That is my prospect source preference. And boldly, I'm definitely not going to act like this is not a bold call, but boldly, they just came out with a top 400 prospects update today and moved Julio Rodriguez, my last pick of the draft, to the number one overall prospect over both Kalenic or Kalenic and Wonder Franco. They dropped Franco down to number three. Thought that was super interesting. That's the kind of first reputable prospect website that I've seen um, take Franco out of number one recently, but to drop him to three, I thought was a pretty strong statement too. So they have yeah, that's, Rodriguez and Kalenic ahead of him. That's pretty bold to have that. I Bronco's good. Uh, Rodriguez is still probably a year away, but dropping him down to three, that's a, that's a bold call. I would have expected maybe he would be dropped down to two behind Kalenic because of, uh, I think you just happen to see guys that are close in proximity get the slight edge um, just because they get more hype. Um, you've definitely seen that with Kalenic this, this uh, spring training, but to, to drop him, I guess to, to drop both Kalenic and Franco behind Julio Rodriguez, that's the first time I've seen that. So I thought that was an interesting note in light of your uh, lack of prospect run observation. My most surprising takeaway from the draft was that young pitching was drafted at an extreme premium, in my opinion. So typically in years past, we've seen young pitchers 
um, kind of live in the mid rounds as most managers in our league have recognized the inherent risks related to workload management. Like you mentioned with Nick's team, there's not going to necessarily be a ton of innings from those guys. Um, but there's also the risk of like hitters adjusting to them, like experienced veteran stud hitters in major league baseball adjusting to them, or even just an unsuccessful transition into the early part of their careers. So like think of, um, Mackenzie Gore, if he were to come up this year and, and not necessarily have as much success as everyone has hyped him up to expect over these last few years, um, that's a risk too, right? But this year, um, or I should say in the, in the past, they still go in those early mid rounds, I want to say. Um, and I'm only recalling from, you know, an anecdotal perspective. I'm not actually looking at a draft board to see where the young pitchers have gone and 2020, 2019, but I feel like typically they've gone in the early mid rounds because people kind of still salivate over the perceived upside around guys that fit the bill of young pitcher with ace to starting pitcher two upside. This year, however, we saw all of Zach Plezak, Ian Anderson, Chris Paddock, Jesus Lazardo, Sixto Sanchez, and Julio Urias go in the top 61 picks. Uh, specifically, Eddie and Nick were the primary sources behind this kind of aggressive approach at drafting young pitching. I think it's ultimately going to prove to either be a sneaky way of navigating around the premium price of proven ace and SP2 type pitchers going really early um, and the need to sacrifice elite hitting to get those guys that typically go in the first, second, or early third round. Um, to navigate around that, Eddie and Nick ended up taking elite hitting early. Both took elite hitters with their first two picks and then kind of swung for pitching upside with these young pitchers with their next string of picks. So I think in effect, it pushed young pitching way up the board in a way that we haven't seen before for the most part, but it might prove to pay off because I don't necessarily think that some of these guys that I mentioned earlier Zach Anderson, Paddock, Lazardo, Sanchez, Urias. I don't think that their upside is totally different, or I should say in a different ballpark from some of the aces that we all know and draft in the first three rounds every year. So I'll be interested to see how that plays out. Do you have anything yeah. to add, Jake? Yeah, I, I think that out of all the years to try this, this might be the one where it might pay off the most. Because a lot of these guys do have similar upside, like you said. But the one thing that's always held them back is volume. Well, we're coming off of a year where nobody threw a whole lot of innings. So I think that the distribution of innings is going to be, I want to say a little bit flatter where maybe the gap between a guy like Chris Paddock and maybe a guy like we'll say Zach Plezak maybe isn't that big and in terms of innings. So where, whereas for a for normal season, if we would have had that last year it would have been, maybe a wider gap because they're everybody's coming off of a year where they didn't throw a whole lot of innings. So I don't think volume is quite the concern that it would have been versus the rest of the rest of the pitching field. Sure. And to even give you a more drastic example, Ian Anderson made his MLB debut last year, pitched really well. And I think that's why he was drafted so early is just because his only body of major league work so far has been really good. I don't necessarily know that he's going to throw a ton less innings than a guy like say Walker Bueller coming off of a 60 game season where you can't just have a guy throw 
60 innings one season. I don't even think Bueller got up to 60 innings. I'd be surprised if he did. But then have him throw 200 innings the very next season. That's just not how pitching management wor- or pitching workload management goes in Major League Baseball. Um, and so where you would see a guy like Bueller, if last year was a normal season, he probably would have hit, I don't know, 150, 150 innings. And Anderson made his debut later in the, later in the calendar year um, since the season started later. Anderson might have only went, I don't know, 90 innings last year, as opposed to if it was a full season, Bueller going 150. Well, now that inning difference is dropping from 60 in a normal year to they probably threw a difference of 20 innings last year. So Anderson's buildup this year may look similar to a guy like Walker Bueller. And I'm just giving an example to kind of show exactly what you're saying, that a guy that's in this range may have even a similar workload to a guy that was taken really early. So should be, again, really interesting to see how that plays out. And I think you're right that this is kind of the year to try um, swinging for upside with guys that you don't necessarily expect to throw a ton of innings. Jake, biggest value in the draft. And I'm going to ask from a redraft angle. So like, who do you think is going to be the best return on draft value or just the 2021 season? And then I'm going to ask you from a potential keeper angle, who could you see being one of the best keepers this time next year, entering the 2022 baseball season? I'll ask you for your redraft biggest value first. All right, this is a guy that I spent several rounds just staring at, being sad that I couldn't take him, and that is Carlos Correa. Uh, it was not long ago that this guy was going in the first three rounds. I really think he fell too far here. He had a bad regular season last year, but when you combine the play, like he really picked it up in the playoffs, and really all the Astros did. They had sort of a down regular season, but kind of came alive in the, in the playoffs, and I think it is important to kind of combine those two samples because, it was, because we had such uh, – limited data to go on last year. But honestly, I would be fine having Correa as my starting shortstop this year. I think pre- people are prematurely writing him off in the same way that they wrote off Corey Seager last year. I'm not saying he's going to turn into Corey Seager, but he is plenty capable of being an elite hitter that's going to return first three-round value. And he was picked uh, – let's see. I don't have it on. He was picked in I want to the- say in 12th round is where I got him. Yeah. yeah, I was excited to get him there. I kind of – Again, I agree with your statement that he's not going to turn into Corey Seager. That's not my expectation, but I did have Corey Seager in the back of my mind when I made that pick because I think you got Seager, what, in the 18th round last year? Like an absolutely nuts value on Corey Seager. This is not quite that steep of a discount, but I remembered you know, what happened not too long ago with Seager and your pick of him in the 2020 draft. And so when I saw Correa sitting there, I want to say in like round late round 10 or round 11, something like that. I'm like, yeah, this guy's easily my next pick. And I was excited to get him there. My biggest value from a redraft angle. And this one might come as a surprise because he hasn't necessarily been a proven asset yet, but it is Zach Eflin in the 14th round. So basically what I was trying to do here was make a pick that was, I guess, early enough that I don't expect him, this player, to turn into like a huge keeper value. But I do expect them to turn return solid value from where they were drafted. I think Eflin fits into that description perfectly. Um, not to go into too much detail 
in terms of stats and analytics like we did last week's episode. But to give you an idea of why I think Eflin will be a good return on investment, he was above average in K percentage, uh, BB percentage or walk percentage is what that's more commonly called. Average exit velocity, hard hit percentage, and a few other metrics we covered in last week's episode that suggest that his skills of limiting contact and walks while inducing weak contact when he does allow it, I think that's going to prime him for a 2021 breakout. Um, And again, the reason why I slotted him in this category rather than our next category of being a potential keeper is that I'm not sure he'll break out to the extent of being one of the premier pitchers in the game, but I do think that he'll provide a good return on investment for Sam at the cost of a 14th round pick. Anything to add, or do you just want to jump into your potential keeper biggest value, Jake? I'll be honest. I'm not huge on Zach Eflin. I, I liked a couple of the other pitchers that went a little bit later, but I'm, we're going to get more into some of them when we talk about best, worst picks. But Sounds Zach good. has upside. There's no denying it. I just he wasn't on he wasn't on my short list of upside pitchers I would have wanted. Sure. It's fine. It's fine with me. Uh, potential keeper biggest value. Who do you got? I think there's the the right answer here is Eloy Jimenez, who I think we all just forgot existed, even though we just talked about him because of his injury. Um, he fell all the way to I think the 24th round, which is amazing. And he should be a three-year keeper without a doubt and be a pretty steep value for each one of those years. Um, he's going to be a centerpiece for Eddie if he chooses to keep him around. Yeah, and I only didn't choose Eloy because I thought it was so obvious that either A, you were going to pick him, or B, we were both going to have the same idea of like, oh, we're definitely going to talk about Eloy regardless, so we're just going to choose somebody different. So I'm glad that you chose Eloy. I went a different route, and I chose Logan Gilbert in the 23rd round. Uh, That was Courtney's pick. For those that don't know, Logan Gilbert is ranked as a consensus top two pitching prospect in the Mariners farm system. Although he is definitely going to be the first of Seattle's big three arms to make his major league debut. I expect him. And I think most people do expect him to debut in late April. So only going to be a few weeks until Courtney gets to use him in her lineup. And he's advertised as having the type of skills that could make all of us who had an eye on him during the draft regret not pulling the trigger before Courtney did in the 23rd round. I'll admit I was selfishly holding out until one of my last two picks to take him because I didn't think um, that he would be on anyone's radar given that I don't even know that he pitched in a spring game this uh, these past few weeks. So I just didn't think that anybody was going to be antsy to jump on him and take him. So I kind of thought maybe I'd be able to get him with one of my last couple picks. Kudos to Courtney for grabbing him. I think that he's going to be a really good pitcher, but as with any prospect, you never know what's going to happen. Um, but I'm excited to see what this kid can do. Yeah. I like Logan Gilbert a lot too. Um, I was also sad that I didn't get him and he should be up pretty early. And I think for, I think we're seeing that pitcher keepers are when they hit, are extremely, extremely valuable. They're probably probably the most valuable type of keeper. So getting a guy this late with his kind of upside could really pay dividends in the future. Yeah, I want to say that the, the two most prime examples of something like this working out in terms of a pitcher 
I think was the first time we ever saw it was Blake Snell. And I'm not suggesting that Logan Gilbert is going to go win the AL Cy Young out of the 23rd round, but that was pretty crazy. And then I think the other clear example is Shane Bieber. Again, not suggesting that Logan Gilbert is going to come out of the gate and be a top pitcher in the AL, you know, his first season or, or anything like that. But it's just like you mentioned, I think even if say he turned into a top 20 starting pitcher on a per start basis to get him in the 18th next year, and then be looking ahead at two more years of eligibility in the 14th and then the 11th, if he were to become a top 20 pitcher, that's one of the best keeper values in the league. I'm, I don't know if he will, but I think he certainly has the potential to do so. So. And at the 23rd round, that's really all you can ask that he has the potential to do so. There's not a lot of guys that last that long that you look at and are like, that guy's going to be a great keeper. Right. Yeah. Most of the time it's a swing for the fence. Unless um, it's Eloy Jimenez, who we all forgot about. Unless it's Eloy Jimenez. It'll be interesting, actually. Like, I think Eloy's going to be a great keeper, but I will bring the pick down to earth very so or ever so slightly by saying, one, I'm not a huge fan of Eloy's skill set for our settings. I think he's still going to be an above average hitter, but I don't think he's an elite player, I guess, in our scoring format. Again, this is not to knock, but just kind of to put the pick into bringing it back down to earth context. The second reason is I think, and I'm actually going to talk to you about this later in the episode, I think that this injury for Eloy might spell permanent DH duties and he might not even be eligible in the outfield moving forward. So we will get back to that. Jake, who do you think had the best overall draft, uh, excluding your own team, of course? Not, not suggesting that you would pick your own team, but who do you think in the league had the best draft? Uh, so I, had, I, I liked what Mike did a lot. Um, he did a very nice job, I think, balancing his roster. He already came into the draft with a pretty phenomenal keeper foundation, especially with Tatis and uh, Cabrian Hayes. He had another pitcher in Woodruff, who I like early. Um, I think he really added to it pretty nicely. Cattell Marte in the fifth might have been my favorite early round pick. Um, and I was really I was really disappointed he didn't slip back to me because I there was a second there where I thought he was going to. Um, the top three of Bueller, Woodruff, and Freed stacks up pretty much against any team. And, of course, he got one of my favorite breakout picks who we spoke about last episode with Tariq Skubal. Um, and lastly, I saw that he didn't get a first baseman early, but he'd made the very savvy pickup of CJ Crone in the 19th, who now with the Rockies, I think is going to provide very good numbers this year and will be plenty capable of being a starting first baseman. But overall, I thought he just did a very nice job balancing his roster. Um, there weren't many picks that he had really, there weren't really any picks that he had that i kind of looked at sideways like what are you doing here but he I think he definitely had a pretty good draft and uh I think he's gonna have a good really good year this year I would agree um not that not that Mike's team is my pick but I do think that he's gonna have a really good year and you'll hear a little bit more about that in a little bit I chose JC's team uh you mentioned that in last week's episode that his roster as the one that was in the best position to kind of make a splash in the draft and <laughs> whether good or bad, 
he definitely did that, making a splash by taking Freddie Freeman third overall, leaving Mike Trout, Aaron Nola, and others on the board. And while I wouldn't have made that pick or his second round pick of Kevin Biggio myself, JC stuck to his plan of aggressively addressing the weaker positions in fantasy of first base, second base, and even catcher by taking Salvador Perez during our keeper expansion draft. I just don't see a weakness on JC's roster in terms of the three broad areas that compose a team, which are offense, starting pitching, and relief pitching. And I actually went so far as to text JC like super late that night after the draft and say, your team is stacked. Like in terms of just like, if we're looking at teams coming out of the draft, I love the makeup of his team. And I really told, I told him that I really admired him sticking to his plan of addressing those weaker positions in the field of fantasy baseball. And I think it worked out really well for him. So JC was my pick. Yeah. I like JC's team a lot. You'll, you'll see whatever I, um, one of my bold predictions has to do with his team and you're like you said, he doesn't really have many weaknesses. He did a really good job. Yeah. Let's talk about, let's get into some more specifics. Let's talk about best pick and worst pick for each team. We're just going to go in order of the draft order. So we're going to start with Brendan's team, Cleveland white males. I will start by giving my best pick for Brendan was, and this is going to be, you're probably going to say, Oh, this is a Nate guy. It's probably why I made the pick. Carlos Santana, first baseman for the Kansas City Royals. Brendan got him in the 22nd round with the 12th pick. So basically at the very end of the draft. And I will flip and give you my, what I think is his worst pick, which was Adalberto Mondesi shortstop for the same team, Kansas City Royals. He got him with the first pick of the fifth round. And I chose that worst pick before Mondesi got placed on IL, just in full transparency. Jake, Who'd you pick for his best and his worst picks? So I also had Carlos Santana as his best pick. Uh, Santana is plenty capable in this format of being a top 10, um, top 10 first baseman. And I do like, I actually like his landing spot in Kansas city. He's going to get a lot of playing time. And I do think that that Kansas city lineup is actually kind of sneaky good this year. Uh, for his worst pick, I had Mondesi originally, but I flipped it to please after Mondesi got hurt. Uh, I don't, I don't dislike Plezak as a player. It's just in the second round, you are, and I understand that he, he wanted to get a pitcher and that was probably the top one on his board, but you are leaving yourself with absolutely no room for profit with that pick. And your Plezak is not, he's not bulletproof. Uh, again, like we, we kind of touched on his potential downside last episode, but that's, that's a pretty risky pick there for this, for the second round choice. I think he might have listened to our episode last week and decided that he was bulletproof with that with that <laughs> aggressive pick there. I was I was floored when he when I saw that he took Plezak with his second pick. But hey, you got to get your guys if you know if you think that they're gonna go go off the board soon. I guess you got to get them. And it, it's pretty clear that with his, spending his second pick on Plezak that it's, it's pretty easy to see that Plezak must have been one of Brendan's guys. So, uh, Team Andrew Baum 12, who do you have for best and worst pick? All right, so for his best pick, I have John Means, who I really like as a breakout this year. Uh, not to get into it too deep, but I, I liked the velocity gains from last year. He started out spring training but where the velocity was down again, but it sort of crept back up as spring training went along. And I still have him as one of my breakout picks. 
Uh, for worst pick, I picked Chris Bassett in the 12th just because there were a lot of pitchers that went later that I definitely much preferred to Bassett. Uh, I don't think he's nearly as good as his numbers would indicate from last season. I had the same pick for best pick, John Means, starting pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles in the 16th round with the 11th pick. Worst pick for me um, from Andrew's auto draft was Gary Sanchez. I don't even know if he deserves to be drafted, period. Maybe that's going a little bit too far with it, but I just don't think Gary Sanchez is going to be fantasy relevant. Pending a complete change in his batted ball profile, uh, and it was his second catcher. I think auto pick kind of screwed him there, but 20th round pick, pick 11, you know, a super cheap pick, whatever, but you should never draft a second major league catcher in our format and certainly don't want it to be Gary Sanchez. So that's easily my worst pick for team Andrew Baum 12. JC's team, best pick in my opinion was Tyler Malley, starting pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. He got him with the third pick of the 11th round. And uh, I know this might sound backwards because I was just praising him for sticking to the strategy, I thought his worst pick was Kevin Biggio. Second, he's, I'll say this, he's second base, third base, and right field eligible playing for the Toronto Blue Jays. But JC took him in the second round with the 10th pick. I thought that was far too early um, for my taste. Uh, so my best pick for JC was JD Martinez. And I know that we talked about his downside, but we still got to remember this is a guy who was an early round hitter for a couple years in a row and he may not be done. Um, in the 13th round, you're leaving yourself plenty of room for profit. And even if you have to drop him cause he's bad, it's not a huge deal. So I do think that I, I liked the upside pick a lot there. Uh, first worst pick, I picked Jose Barrios. Um, a lot of this is just because I am really not a huge Jose Barrios guy. Uh, he kind of just is what he is. I don't think that he's really an ace in He'll, he'll give you volume, probably an ERA around four, maybe a little, maybe around a strikeout per inning. That's plenty of valuable, but I think there, there are a lot of other guys that kind of share that profile that went two or three rounds later. Sure. The next team we have is Courtney's team, Team C. Deemer, and my best pick for her was somebody I already touched on in detail, Logan Gilbert, starting pitcher for the Seattle Mariners, with the fourth pick of the 23rd round. And the worst pick that I have for her is Chris Taylor, second base, shortstop, left field, and center field eligible for the Los Angeles Dodgers, fourth pick of the 13th round. I can, again, see, I guess, the argument to be made with the multi-position eligibility. I just don't see Chris Taylor being fantasy relevant despite the positional eligibility. Who'd you have for Courtney? Uh, so I also had Gilbert as her, as her best pick, but I'll pivot and say use this opportunity to profess my love for Nick Castellanos and how upset I am that I did not get him. Uh, I think that he he has all the potential to have to be a top two round hitter um, going into next year. She got him in the fourth round, so it's not really a huge discount. But I did like him, I do like him a lot to be a, a really elite hitter this year. Uh, for her worst pick, I also had Chris Taylor. Um, I think Chris Taylor will be fine as somebody to roster to fill in, but I guess this also this more has to do with I don't see him as being that much different than somebody like Jake Cronenworth or Nick Solak, and they went a lot later. Yeah, that's fair. 
Uh, next team is Jerry's team. He named it Testicular Torkelson. Don't really know what those two words have to do in terms of association with one another. But best pick I have for Jerwin was Michael Kopeck, starting pitcher who's actually going to open in the bullpen with the Chicago White Sox. He got him with the fifth pick of the 19th round. I think A, he is probably going to turn into a Sparp this year, so I think he'll be useful in that regard. And B, I think that Kopech has as high of an upside as really any top pitching prospect in the game. He's just kind of been forgotten about because he wasn't around last year. So I think that was a really good pick by Jerwin. Worst pick I have for him, and this might be a theme, I think that uh, the multi-position eligibility guys just got pushed up because people were kind of salivating over seeing two, three, four positions. But Brandon Lau, second base, left field, and right field eligible for the Tampa Bay Rays. Jerwin took him with the fifth pick of the third round. I just don't like – I don't – three three positions is great. I don't think the skill set warrants being taken that high. Yeah, I agree with you on the Lau pick. He was also my, my worst pick for Jerwin. Um, I just, like you said, I don't think he stacks up with a lot of the elite hitters that went as even some, even some that went after him. Um, I want to say that Anthony Rendon went after him. Uh, even some, like, even George, like George Springer, those are all guys that I think, um, I think have better skill sets than he does. Um, the multi-positional eligibility is helpful, but at that point, I think you go for best player available. And I don't think that was Lau at that point. Uh, for his best pick, I have Ian Happ. I like Happ as kind of a breakout this year. Um, I think he's going to be leading off for the Cubs. Uh, he walks a lot. Uh, I, he doesn't usually hit hit for a high average, but I do think that's going to turn around this year. He's going to get plenty of plate appearances, and in a points league, that's always important. So he's going to have all the opportunity in the world to uh, really rack up counting stats. Yeah, I Happ. I don't have a strong opinion on him one way or another, but I could definitely see him being a solid early to mid round value. So can't disagree with you there. Next team is Jordan's Keiko and the Cucks. He rebranded today, actually. His best pick in my book, it was a really early pick, um, but I think made perfect sense. So I'm kind of going on the opposite side here with this multi-position eligible player, DJ LeMahieu. He got he, or he has first base, second base, and third base eligibility for the New York Yankees. Jordan took him with the seventh pick of the second round. Um, and then on the flip side, worst pick, I actually have Dominic Smith, first base and left field eligible for the New York Mets. Jordan took him in the seventh round with the sixth pick. Again, same thing as Brandon Lau. I just don't think the skill set warrants him being drafted in this range. Uh, so I also had DJ LeMahieu as my best pick, and I, I really like DJ LeMahieu. And I, I, I like that Jordan got him because DJ LeMahieu is, is a Jordan guy. And like you said, the multi-position eligibility is very helpful. He perform he he is an elite hitter. Um, I trust him to perform like that again this year, even with the balls being a little bit deadened. Uh, for his worst pick, I had Starling Marte in the fourth, um, mostly because I liked some of the outfielders that went after him, and I I liked I I liked another Marte, Cattell Marte, uh, a lot more than him, and he. While he doesn't have it right now, he will pick up center field eligibility. And I also liked Castellanos. Uh, Yastrzemski, I think I had ahead of him. There were just a couple guys. I, I'm not huge on Marte. 
I don't think he was the best outfielder available here. Sure, that's fair. Next team is Sam's, which he still hasn't rebranded despite being required to. He's currently named TP Prez, should be weak pullout hitter. I mentioned his, or I should say I alluded to what I think is his best pick earlier, Zach Eflin, starting pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies in the 14th round with the sixth pick. On the flip side, worst pick for me was Bobby Witt Jr., shortstop prospect for the Kansas City Royals. He took him in the very next round, the seventh pick of the 15th. I just thought uh, that one doesn't make much sense unless you get really lucky and they call him up very aggressively. See, I actually had Witt as one of my favorite picks for Sam. I, that's the one I chose to talk about, too. I, li- I think that the 15th, that's plenty late to take a shot at a prospect. Uh, there was talk about him breaking camp with the team. So I don't think that it would be totally unreasonable to see him up at the end of April. We'll probably pick up second base eligibility. Uh, and if he sticks, the plate discipline's a little iffy, but if he sticks, uh, having him at a weaker position as a keeper for a couple of years, that's not, that could be pretty helpful. Uh, for my worst pick for him, I had uh, Andrew Heaney in the 10th. Uh, this is This is more so another situation where I, preferred a lot of the pitchers that went behind him. I'm not a huge Andrew Heaney guy. Uh, I've kind of been faked out with him a couple years. So I, I did not want to get burned this year and kind of had him push down my rankings. Yeah. I'll say in follow up to the wit conversation, I want to say the people that have been chattering about him breaking camp with the team have mostly been those belonging to the fantasy baseball community, because I want to say, and this isn't an exact number, but I think Bobby Witt jr. Only has like, 60 total at bats in professional baseball. That would probably be an unprecedented call up if he's with the team in less than a month. But I mean, hey, it could happen. You never know. Uh, Juan Soto was called up at 19 and now he's one of the best hitters in baseball two years running. So we've seen strange things like that happen before. Big Money Mike is our next team. I thought, and you might agree, or if you don't agree, it's probably one of the candidates for your best pick. Uh, I think it's. I think his name is pronounced Tarek Skubal. I've always called him Tariq Skubal, but I recently have heard on multiple outlets him being referred to as Tarek Skubal. So I don't know. I'm probably going to call him Tarek Skubal unless I hear otherwise. But he was my favorite pick, starting pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, round 17, pick eight. I thought his worst pick was James Karinchak, relief pitcher for the Cleveland Indians, in round seven, pick eight. Um, not so much because Karen Chak doesn't have an elite skill set. He does, but he is probably not going to get the lion's share of save opportunities in Cleveland because they're trying to keep his statistics down so that they don't have to pay him as much when he becomes arbitration eligible. Isn't baseball great, Jake? <laughs> uh, Karen Chak was also my worst pick for Mike. Um, I This kind of goes back to what we talked about last podcast where I, I don't generally like taking relievers early. And I think while Karen Jack does have the stuff where he's could be a high strikeout elite reliever, he is far from a sure thing with that uh, really shaky control, especially coming back to bite him in the spring where he went in. We, everybody was expecting him to have the closer job. Uh, he walked like a billion hitters. And now suddenly he's now, uh, I think it's Whitgren is the, is the favorite for saves there. Um, mm-hmm. For his best picks, I was having trouble choosing. There were a lot that I really liked. I like Ketel Marte in the fifth, as I already said. 
uh, CJ Crone already touched on. And then you just, you just talked about the other pick that I really liked, which was Scooble, who we talked about last episode as a potential big time breakout this year. And uh, I think out of all of them, Scooble's probably my favorite. I was, I was hoping he would make it back to me. I was, I was sad I did not get him. Yeah, I know. So he was the top, he was on the top of my queue, right? And I was the next pick after Mike. And then right after me, it was your pick, and he was at the top of your queue. So three teams in a row that Scooble was at the top of the queue for right as he went. So um, I don't think there's much else to say there. I'm actually going to let you make the picks for my team first. I'm going to give you preferential treatment and, and let you call the best pick since we had previously discussed what I think is my worst pick, and you agreed to pivot off because you agreed with that worst pick. So Number one contender, that is my team. Who do you think was my best and my worst picks? Uh, so best pick, I already talked about him a little bit, Carlos Correa. I think there's just a lot of room to profit there. Um, you got him late enough that he could be a keeper for you. He could be – you could, he could trade him. He could be an elite star. He could be an elite hitter, elite top, top three-round hitter. Your worst pick, I have Kevin Gosman. And this has a lot to do with um, – you already had a lot of starting pitchers. And you got a guy the very next round, actually two guys the very next two rounds that I preferred more than Gosman um, in Sandy Alcantara and Pablo Lopez. I just don't know that you really needed another pitcher there. Uh, Gosman's not really, I don't think he's that much better than a guy like Frankie Montas or even Corey Kluber. The fact that the splitter is his, is his primary, I guess this is his, his best secondary pitch kind of, kind of spooks me a little bit because it's, those can be kind of volatile. Yeah. So Kevin Gosman was one of those guys that I don't think is a sexy name in terms of top pitchers or, or mid round pitchers, but he did fit into the category or the strategy for me, which was I'm not going to pivot off of taking pitchers until either a, a hitter is there that I feel like I absolutely have to take based on the value or B all of the good pitchers and I'm defining good as like top 30 to 35 range right before the really steep cliff at starting pitcher before all of them were gone. I was basically going to keep drafting starting pitchers. Um, so just to, I guess add some context to the Gosman pick. I'm glad that I let you go first with the best and worst picks for my team. Cause I actually did have Correa there originally as the best pick for my team, but I'm actually going to pivot here and say Anthony Rendon in the third round, was my best pick primarily because I think that Rendon has the skill, the upside, the floor, you know, all the combination of all of that. I think he has that to match pretty much any hitter um, from the end of the first round onward. And it was kind of tough for me to pick between he and Bogarts here. I was really excited to get both of them. And the, at that three, four turn, I think that that, um, was a really nice value for me after going Scherzer and Kershaw in the first two rounds. And I'll transition by saying, I think actually Max Scherzer was my worst pick with uh, spending the 10th overall pick of the first round on him. And I know, you know, a bunch of people in the room on zoom were saying, Oh, we fed right into your plan to, to talk about Max Scherzer as a bust. And then you go around and take him in the draft. That's not what happened. I actually, did not like my picks of Max Scherzer and then following it up with a pairing of Clayton Kershaw a few picks later in the second round. I had just formulated a draft strategy that I spent hours putting together. And I had kind of decided that the way that I was ranking players was going to be 
I am sticking to this strategy of attacking starting pitcher very aggressively. And I think that most of the time, pretty much all the time, it's probably a mistake that if you plan extensively to follow one draft strategy and then you pivot off of it in the middle, um, kind of like impromptu, and you have to change your entire plan for the draft in the first round, um, I think that that's just a recipe for the draft not going the way that you wanted it to. So I'll say that's my explanation for why I wasn't actually lying about Scherzer, but I still think that he was my worst pick of the draft. Um, yeah, I was ready to come on here and uh, press you on why you picked our two bust picks. You're making the pot. You're making the podcast look bad. Yeah, Scherzer and Kershaw. Not totally excited to get them. Um, were there worse pitchers to be had? If I had not taken pitchers there, certainly yes. And that was the situation that I did not want to be in. I wanted to definitely come out of the draft with a top three, if not a very clearly top two pitching rotation in the league. And I I think I definitely at least got a top three one. So I'm happy about that, regardless of Scherzer being a pretty risky pick. Jake, let's talk about your team. Uh, best pick, in my opinion, was Mike Yastrzemski. He has triple eligibility in the outfield playing for the San Francisco Giants. You got him with the third pick of the sixth round. And then on the flip side, worst pick in my opinion was Aaron Hicks, center fielder for the New York Yankees. You got him six rounds later in the 12th with the third pick. Uh, Same kind of reason that you chose, I want to say, who was your pick that you mentioned like you liked outfielders that were going after him? Starling Marte with Jordan's team, right? Yeah. It was the same kind of situation for me here. I thought that there were either A, a lot of comparable outfielders at this point, or B, just outfielders that I straight up liked better going after Aaron Hicks. The one consolation that I'll say that I imagine you had in mind when you selected him was that he does have center field eligibility, which I know is pretty weak. Like I know a lot of people mention second base and catcher center field, I think is, is pretty, pretty up there in terms of being a weak position for our league as well. Um, but you did have Yastrzemski who has center field eligibility. I'm curious to hear uh, not just your picks for your own team, but what your thought process was on Hicks. Yeah. I can't disagree with you on the Hicks pick. That was, that was my pick for the, for my worst one. Um, that I think was the one draft where I looked at it or the one pick in the draft where I looked at it and I was thinking, man, I really have to take an outfielder here because, and Hicks was the last one in the tier of center fielders that I had. Uh, if I had to do it over again, though, I would have moved, like you said, I would have moved Yastrzemski to center, uh, picked up a corner, like, like, uh, mainly Clint Frazier. I had him pretty high. Um, but yeah, it was just, that was more of a reaction pick, which you never want to do. Uh, it was a reaction to the the lack of outfielders I had on my roster and the fact that if I, I felt if I didn't get one there, then I would really be in some trouble. Uh, for my best pick, I had James Paxton, who I started really coming around on later. He was working on the backfields for most of spring, so we didn't really get to see him a whole lot. But from what I have, what I've seen, the velocity's back. Uh, he's striking out a lot of hitters. Um, I don't know if he's going to be the Paxton of old, but uh, the Paxton of old upside is probably still there. And in the 16th round, really all you can ask for at that point. 
Yeah, and like you mentioned earlier, uh, lots of room for profit there. Paxson is not a guy that I am excited about this year, but there's virtually zero risk where you took him. So I can definitely see why you would be excited about the upside there. And I and I think maybe some age bias is playing in there. Like typically we give the nod to young players with upside um, and we want to take them early or, or we want to get really excited about taking them late. But, you know, sometimes the veterans have just as good of an upside. And so there's not necessarily a solid reason why we shouldn't be just as excited to get them late too. So I'll give you the nod there and say, Paxson is not totally different from a young pitcher with upside that might've gone in the same range. So I like that pick as well. Uh, let's talk about our two new guys, Eddie with, which is team gone forever. Who did you have? It's probably since we talked about it earlier, I'm guessing it's Eloy Jimenez, but give me your best and worst pick for Eddie's team. I wasn't going to talk about Eli Jimenez quoted be four times in this episode. So I chose to do Josh Bell here. Uh, I absolutely love Josh Bell as a rebound this year. Um, I like that he, he's in a better lineup. Their pitchers are actually going to have to throw to him now. Whereas with the Pirates, there was the lineup was pretty barren. It was kind of just him and some other whoever else they decided to throw in there. Uh, but I really like Josh Bell as a, as a, as a rebound this year. Um, I, I think he is plenty capable of being a top five first baseman uh, for the worst pick. I had Jorge Soler. Um, this just has this, this really has everything to do with him just kind of being a mad pick, I guess, in this, in this area. Um, I would have preferred a lot of other outfielders in this range. Uh, guys like, again, like Clint Frazier was the Clint Frazier. Um, I think Alex, no, no, Alex Verdugo got, got kept. Tommy, even Tommy Pham, he's just he just doesn't really really do anything for me, I guess. Yeah, I actually had the same worst picked Jorge Soler, uh, but my reasoning was flawed. I thought Soler was DH only after Eddie had kept Giancarlo Stanton, who is also DH only. So technically my reasoning is flawed. I'm not necessarily gonna pivot off of the pick though, because I agree. I don't think Jorge Soler has a lot of upside to offer. Like, yeah, he might hit 40 home runs, but at the expense of everything else. So that kind of player just doesn't really do much for me personally. And I will talk about Eloy Jimenez for the fourth time. That was my choice for best pick for Eddie in the 24th round. Uh, so that's that. Nick, Pine Run Market, last but not least. I have a have an inkling that we are both going to make the same pick for best pick. So I'm going to let you go first, Jake. My best pick for him was Domingo Herman, or as Nick would say, Domingo German. And in the 24th round, that is, you are leaving yourself a lot of room to profit from a guy. I think it was 2000, was it 2019 where he had his, he kind of had his breakout year, but even he doesn't have to be an ace to, to, return a lot of value there um there's there's really no downside to taking a guy like him that late and he's going to offer just as much upside really as anybody else in that range uh for worst pick i had christian javier um for him i really i just don't buy the skill set uh he's such a weird pitcher i don't remember which one it is but i know his xera was really high and his xfip was really low or I, one of the or it was flipped 
but he's just someone I really can't figure out. And I, I just don't think he has that much upside. He's not really a whole, he doesn't really have any good secondary pitches and beyond his, like his fastball is just okay. I, I just, I, I don't think he provides a whole lot of upside. And in the 14th round, there were other pitchers that could have been selected there that'll probably give you not only more upside, but also more volume. I come on the other side of Christian Javier. I think he is a question mark, but I tend to lean more toward giving him the benefit of the doubt. However, I will say I was right because my best pick was also Domingo, Domingo Herman, starting pitcher for the New York Yankees. Nick took him with the first pick of the 24th round. My worst pick for Nick was Tommy Edmond. He chose him with the first pick of the 10th round. And uh, I guess I can see why. He has second base, third base, shortstop, left field, and right field eligibility. Basically playing every single position. Might as well just throw some catcher's gear on him, as well as throw him out to the mound at some point. Just give him everything. Uh, despite having all of that eligibility and basically being a plug-and-play anywhere in Nick's lineup, I just don't see the upside for him. I think that he's a guy that, some people in the fantasy community are, are high on, or I should say high on his potential upside. I just don't see it with Tommy Edmond. I think the only thing he has going, in my opinion, is the multi-position eligibility. So I didn't very much care for that pick. Although I know that Nick likes Tommy Edmond, so who cares for my opinion, right? Uh, let's move on to a fun part of the episode. Not that the rest hasn't been fun, but I always look forward to these prediction segments we're going to go with Bold Predictions Part 2, our team edition. So talking about specific teams and in our fantasy league, Jake, give me, we're going to do two each, but I'm going to say give me just one of your two bold predictions for a team in our league this season based on the results of the draft. All right, you better get ready because these are some piping hot takes. My first one is Nick will have the NL MVP, Cy Young, and Rookie of the Year all on his roster. I don't think he has any of the front runners for these, but he does have quite a few candidates that could take home any of these awards. Uh, I was very high on Christian Yelich coming into this year, and I think there's big bounce back potential for him. Uh, in addition, Bryce Harper, who he got when I think at the he took those two at the turn. Harper is coming off of a year where he had better uh, better stat cast metrics than uh, than his MVP year back in 2015. Uh, for Rookie of the Year, both Ian Anderson and Sixto Sanchez are uh, probably favorites heading into it, along with Cabrian Hayes. But they were both fantastic last year and could easily take home the award. Uh, the, that NL rookie class really is stacked, but I do think that they, those two are at the top. Uh, Cy Young is more of a long shot. Castillo, um, he probably is the best chance. Uh, I think he'll be the only one out of Nick's staff that'll get enough innings that he'll really be in consideration. His whip will likely be a little high with the Reds' bad defense behind him. Uh, his control is also not pristine. But I do think that he does have the upside where he could have that magical season in him where everything goes right and he's a top pitcher. So that is my bold prediction that Nick will pretty much clean up the National League awards. I like that prediction. And for some of our new guys, so that you don't have to drag out the baseball edition of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, whip is walks and hits per inning. Um, defense obviously doesn't have to do with walks, but some grounders might sneak through the infield and go for base hits. Uh, so that is what Jake is referring to with Cincinnati's poor defense, that they did absolutely nothing to address this offseason. 
my first bold take or bold prediction is that Brendan will lose his all time. And of course, this is a tied leading streak of making playoffs in every season that the league has been active thus far by finishing in the bottom four teams during the regular season and missing the playoffs for the first time ever. I don't necessarily have too much in-depth to go into with Brendan's team. I just didn't particularly like the zero-pitcher strategy that he went with, in effect. And I think, unless he's able to swing a big trade or two early, um, that people are going to realize what they have with the top starting pitchers around the league, and they're not going to want to let go of those at all. So I think that, uh, you know, these are bold predictions. I think that that's one that could certainly come true with, you know, given Brendan's pitching situation. Jake. That definitely is bold that you're betting against a first-round Brendan playoff upset. Yeah, not just a, an upset, but but getting there in the first place. And it's it's <laughs> I'd like to say that that's even more bold given that we expanded to eight teams, so like two-thirds of the league making playoffs. Give me your second bold prediction. All right. So my second bold prediction is that JC comes away with the number one pitching staff. Uh, I think the ingredients are definitely there. Um, He has an ace in Trevor Bauer, who he doesn't have to be the 2020 version. The 2018 Bauer was still a top five pitcher. And I think that's plenty, plenty attainable for him. Uh, If the Padres let Snell go, maybe he returns to the top 10. Uh, Ryu has proven he's a top 15 starter when he's healthy. I know I ragged on Barrios earlier, but he is pretty solid for what he is. Uh, I liked the Mally pick. That's a, that's another one that I liked for a breakout. Um, recently, I've been coming around on Dylan Cease. Uh, I know he's he's kind of revamped his delivery. It's perform he's performing really well in the spring. I liked the the Canning and Evaldi picks late as well. Um, JC has top end talent and high upside depth. Plus, his bullpen isn't going to kill him either. And those are all ingredients where you're going to have a top of the line pitching staff. Now I know that that I think my pitching staff and yours, Nate's, your pitching staff would probably be the favorites right now for top pitching staff honors. But like it, like we've already said, starting pitcher is kind of a volatile position. I already have Zach Allen hurt. You're not getting Sale or Severino back until later. Uh, I think that there is definitely a very real scenario where while we might have the better staffs on paper, stuff kind of goes awry and. JC's guys perform well, and he is definitely well within striking distance where he could come away with the top pitching staff. Yeah, I can't give a a hard disagreement there. My second bold prediction isn't super far off of yours, I suppose. It is that one of JC or Mike will secure their first ever top two finish in the league by making a championship appearance in 2021. Uh, You picked Mike as your team that you felt was your favorite coming out of the draft. I picked JC's team. I'm glad that it unfolded that way because, uh, yeah, this is my second bold prediction. One of those two guys is going to, is going to secure a championship berth in our, in our playoffs this year. I think, I don't know. I don't know who is going to be, and I I shouldn't even say it this way. I was going to say, I don't know who the regular to be bounced is going to be between me, you and Courtney, because I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that, one of the three of us gets back. Um, but I don't think that there's going to, I don't think it's going to be another championship where it comprises two of the three of us. I think we're kind of due for some new blood in the championship round. I think that those two guys have the best shot at doing it. Let's, uh, let's talk about some more predictions, Jake. 
interleague rival predictions. And really, this is just a standings prediction. So we have the East Division. We have the West Division. And uh, the teams that comprise the East Division are Jerwin, Jordan, Andrew, you, JC, and Nick. And then the West Division is composed of Eddie, Courtney, me, Mike, Sam, and Brendan. And I'm only asking you to predict the standings through nine weeks because that's when that to-be-determined matchup comes into play where you're going to play the team in the other division that is currently seated in the same spot in the standings in their division as you. So, Jake, East Division, give me your prediction for the standings come week nine. All right, so I'm going to go number one. I'm going to say JC is leading the division at that point. Number two, I think I'll I think I'll be in, I'll be in second. I have Jordan third, Jerwin fourth, Nick fifth, and Baum sixth. Uh, mostly, I think the J I gave the J, JC the edge over me. Um, I don't think my offense is really bulletproof or anything. Uh, plus, I already have Gallon hurt. So if we're only saying maybe I can catch him in the later half when I have Gallon back, well, hopefully I have Gallon back. But uh, early on, he's healthier than I am. His team is definitely comparable to mine. So I'm giving him the edge there. I like what Jordan did a little more than what Jerwin did. So I'm going to, I'm going to have him ahead of him there. Um, Nick is the one that could really kind of bust this here because like, like I said, he has, he's a, he's a high upside team. If we're only predicting early. I don't know that the innings limits are going to come into play for any of his young pitchers. So he, he could potentially be, uh, be maybe, maybe uh, flip ahead of Jordan or Jerwin. Maybe finish somewhere near the top. Uh, for Baum, I just the the auto pick really kind of did him dirty, <laughs> and I think that the lack of pitching depth, at least early, might might hurt him. Yeah, we actually had the exact same standings prediction, except I have Nick fourth and Jerwin fifth. You had Jerry fourth, Nick fifth. We have those two flipped um, for basically all the reasons that you touched on for all of these teams. I would agree. I think that Jerwin was on track to be drafting a really good team and then kind of veered off the road a little bit by taking a few prospects a little bit too early where he could have still kind of reinforced the depth and talent of his team. Whereas I think that Nick kind of sat in the sweet spot of, yeah, he took young players, but they're players that are in major league baseball right now and have really high upsides. The one, uh, player that might be the exception to your statement of the innings limits may not come back to bite him in the first nine weeks is Sixto Sanchez. They seem to be doing some front uh, front end workload management where they're building his innings up still. So they optioned him to their alternate site. So he will not be with the team presumably for, I don't know, the first two weeks would be my guess. Yeah. I think uh, they said it was like the first turn or two through the rotation. Yeah. So we'll see. I would imagine he's one of the only examples across baseball where they're kind of doing front end workload management, but I guess time will tell with that. We have a similar inkling overall in the East division. So let's move on. I could on also to... see pushing. Uh, sorry. I was going to say, I could yeah. also see everyone getting pushed down a little bit because he does, he did take a couple injured players. And if we're only predicting to week nine, uh, he's going to be missing them for a couple weeks. Yeah. He took Carrasco. And then there was one other, Big player, Soroka. That's right. Yeah, they're going to be out. Or Soroka is going to be back a lot quicker than Carrasco, but I don't think he's going to be back 
um, before mid-April, I would be shocked. So that's at least two matchups. Carrasco probably won't even be back by week nine, if I had to guess. So, yeah, West Division. I'll give you my standings first, or my prediction of the standings. I have Big Money Mike in first place, so kind of holding true to my prediction of him or JC being in the championship. I have those two guys as the uh, the top two heading into week nine. Second place in the West Division, I have Team C. Deemer, Courtney. I think that her offense is super stacked, as we already discussed earlier this episode, but her keepers, as far as pitchers go, um, kind of let her hang with just about anybody in that department, so... I think she's a really good team overall in terms of balance. I have myself coming in at number three. I do like my team, but I don't necessarily think that it's going to have the most early success out of anyone in the division. Fourth, I have Sam, TP Prez, weak pullout hitter, whatever you want to call him. Fifth, I have Eddie, gone forever. Um, Similar reason to Brendan and Bomb, where they just don't have many pitchers or their depth in pitching is not very good. I think Eddie kind of fits into that category as well. And then Brendan, again, going alongside my bold prediction, I have him sixth place. I just don't think that the zero pitcher strategy is going to age well for him. Anything? Oh, wait, you still have to go for West Division. Who do you have, Jake? Uh, the only change that I have from yours is I have uh, Brendan fifth and Eddie sixth. And the reason for that is that uh, Eddie does not, Eddie, Eddie's pitching depth I like a little bit less than Brendan's. And I think the rest of their. Um, but yeah, just to elaborate a little bit, Mike, I said that he was the run, he was the one roster that I liked the most. So I, I do think that he's going to be in first there. Courtney, I had second. The offense is just unreal. Um, and the pitching really, it's not, it's not the top, it's not the best, but it's also, it's definitely not a weak point. Um, you had third, a lot of that is because you're going to be missing a lot of guys for the first couple, the first couple turns through, uh, Sam, I have fourth. I don't even think Sam's team is bad. This was a tough division to pick from because there were a lot of teams that I thought were, were even Sam, Sam's team could be right up there with the other three. I thought that he did a good job. I just, if I'm, if I have to rank them, this is how I rank them. Um, and then Brendan and Eddie, I, I kind of touched. Yeah. I pretty much the same thing you did. I don't think your mic is liking your analysis over uh, Eddie and Brendan, but yeah, they have similar built, similarly built teams and uh, you give preference to Brendan's pitching just a little bit more than Eddie's. So that makes sense to me. Let's finally move on from the draft and talk about very briefly our week one matchup preview. And we'll go a little bit more into detail with, you know, our weekly matchup previews in future episodes when we kind of have some performance to base our analysis on. But let's just kind of shoot off the hip here and make some predictions about week one. So first matchup we have, and of course this first week is based on the final standings from last year so we got me and you playing as the one and two seed i am going to jump out in front of you and say that you are winning this matchup and the reason that i predict as to why is that jacob Degrom, garrett cole and jack flaherty will put up a combined 175 points among the three of them alone i uh, have i i think i'll pull this one out but it's mostly just because i'm catching you at a good time where 
your some of your guys that you picked for positional eligibility aren't eligible there. Uh, you're gonna have to run with a couple backups. There's some guys that are hurt. Uh, I'm sort of catching your team at a pretty optimal moment here. Yeah, that's fair. Who do you have for? And I only listed these in kind of I guess a random order after our after our own matchup because I guess that's the one that appears at the top of my screen. Second matchup I have is. Cleveland White Males versus Team Andrew Bomb 12, Brendan versus Bomb. Who do you have as the winner and why? All right, I think this is going to be the week where uh, Shane Bieber reminds everybody of what he did last year. Uh, he's going to go at least twice. I don't know if he'll make it in there a third time or not, but usually these extended weeks kind of benefit the team with a better pitching staff because the pitchers will go more times. You'll have more t- You'll have more opportunity for them to for them to score whereas with a hitter um it's not it's not nearly as big a difference as just a regular week so i do think that bomb having that pretty significant advantage of having a guy like bieber be able to throw multiple times is what's going to kind of tip him over the edge there i have the same winner i have bomb winning and my reason is shane bieber is going to go ballistic and put up 70 points himself across his two starts Matchup number three is our initiation into the league matchup, Gone Forever, which is Eddie versus Pine Run Market, Nick. And I have the winner walking away from this matchup, Nick. And the reason is I think that the trio of Christian Yelich, Bryce Harper, and Marcelo Zuna will match the output of Eddie's combined top five hitters. Who do you have winning this matchup? I also have Nick. Um, a big reason in that is because I, I like Nick's lineup a little more. And let me elaborate. I, I think that guys like Josh Bell, some, I think there's another one too, are stuck, are kind of currently stuck on Eddie's bench. So I do think that he's going to have to kind of work with that. Um, Nick missing Sixto is going to be, that, that'll be, a, that'll, that'll hurt. But like, overall, I like Nick's, Nick's team a little more right now. Um, especially like you said, with, I, I like Yelich. Um, and Harper especially to start. Yeah, starting with uh, Yelich and Harper out of the gate is going to be strong in terms of, of setting a team floor on a week-to-week basis with, with just how many points those guys will score. Uh, JC versus Big Money Mike, maybe a potential championship preview in week one. I don't know. I have the winner walking away from this matchup being JC, and the reason is I think JC will put up the most points in the league over the first matchup while Mike is going to, and this is of course a hindsight take. I'm predicting that Mike is going to end up leaving key starters, Tarek Skubal and Anthony Santander on the bench. And I make that point because those two are currently on his bench right now. Who do you have uh, winning this matchup and why? All right. I'm picking Mike to win this matchup. And I think really a key for him, honestly, is going to be CJ Crone, who I believe gets eight games at Coors Field over the course of uh, over the course of this first matchup. Uh, he also has Garrett Hampson, who normally I wouldn't care about. But again, the Coors Field effect, he's going to be playing there. Um, I like both their pitching staffs. Uh, they're going to I think they're going to get about the same amount of starts. I think JC will have a small edge there. But these teams are really these teams are both really close for me. Um, I think uh, Mike having the course field edge among his hitters is the, is what's going to, what's going to put him over the edge there. I believe the diamondbacks also get also 
visit Coors Field as well. So Cattell Marte will get a couple of games there. You love Cattell Marte. Oh, I love Cattell Marte. <laughs> we got to work him in at least one more time before the end of the episode. Oh, don't, don't make a bet. <laughs> All right, our next matchup. Sam, TP Prez, weak pullout hitter. Uh, should be weak pullout hitter. Sam, you better change your team name. Versus Jordan's team, Keichel and the Cucks. I have Jordan winning this matchup. And the reason being is I think that his comprehensive pitching lineup, so his starting pitchers plus his relief pitchers, will combine for the most points of any pitching lineup in the league during week one. So I also have Jordan, and for that same reason, I think that the matchups are really in his favor this week. Combine that with Sam is probably going to be missing Sonny Gray. I think it's almost guaranteed he's going to be missing Sonny Gray. And I, I think that their hitters are pretty comparable. And I, I really like the edge with Jordan's pitching, even though he did not – I don't think he has that super ace. Uh, Glass now is good, but he's not, he's not that, uh, that upper-tier ace yet. Um, I like the combination of pretty good to great – pretty good pitchers that Jordan's put together where I don't think he has really a weak point in that, in that starting lineup. And I like the matchups they have this week. Sure. Let's talk about our very last matchup. Jerowin Testicular Torkelson versus Courtney, Team C. Deemer. Who do you have walking away as the winner and why? I have Courtney this week, and it is for the very simple reason that her offense is stacked and Jerowin is going to be missing a lot of players. I also have Courtney winning. Reason being, I think Patrick Corbin will implode, while you Darvish will not allow an earned run across his first two starts of the season. Let's move on to our Around the League segment. And we are introducing a new bit this week called League History Fact of the Week, or some weeks we might call it This Week in League History. Jake is going to tell you something interesting based on the league history document that he put together this offseason. Take it away, Jake. All right, so I decided to do something with week one. Now, we, I looked, we don't have anybody, and I only, I guess I should clarify, I only decided when, made, when putting this together to do the, to include the teams that have been here since 2017, so all four years. Um, that would be Jerwin, JC, myself, Courtney, Nate, Sam, and Brendan. So what I, what I found is there is nobody that is undefeated in week one but there is only one team that is three and one and has uh, finished in the top half of scoring in those three weeks and, or in those three matchups. Any guesses to who that is? Out of all the regulars. Uh, well, I am going to say, okay, so let me, let me do process of elimination here. It's not, Jerwin. It's not. Uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb. I don't really know why. I'm just going to say Sam. It's not. It is Brendan. Ugh. That's going to that that he's going to drop the three and two. That's my prediction. <laughs> yeah. So he's the only one that has one has won three games and finished in the top half in three in three out of four. Okay, strong starter and finisher, because usually he, uh, like you said, overachieves late in the season, um, which is actually a compliment to Brendan, by the way. Every time we say that, it just goes to show that 
his management skills can get the most out of his lineup, even if it doesn't necessarily stack up in talent to some of the other top teams. So every time we say that, uh, just know that we're giving Brendan a, a pretty big compliment. He consistently does that. News and notes. Let's uh, let's get the end of the episode underway here. So we've had a lot of bad news recently, and and this feels like it's been out for a while now, but I think it came out after we recorded our first episode. Zach Gallen, he has a hairline fracture in the forearm of his throwing arm. Jake, how comfortable do you feel with your decision to keep him, draft him in the fifth round? Uh, with how high pitching went, I guess I feel more comfortable knowing that I probably still got him at a discount. And I, I there, there's no way to tell, but I, I don't think I would have gotten him. Um, I would have gotten him here had he been available, even with the lack of a timetable. Okay, stealing the thunder of my next question a little bit. Does his lack of a recovery timeline give you any pause on whether or not you made the right decision? I mean, yeah. (laughs) It kind of goes back to what I said the last episode where where I I generally like to go safety early, upside late, and drafting a pitcher who is already hurt coming into the year with my fifth-round pick is obviously not sticking to that. So that does make me very uncomfortable knowing that he still doesn't have a timetable. Yeah. We haven't even heard anything, which I have a share of him in another league. So it makes me nervous as well. Just on a gut feeling. If I gave you an over under line of 150 innings pitched for Zach Gallon this year, are you taking the over or the under? Uh, I'm going to take the under because I, I think I only had him for about 160 innings before the injury. I think the diamondbacks came out and said that he was going to be on an innings limit anyways. So 150 kind of seems a little optimistic, even though he'll miss a month. Well, hopefully he'll miss a month. I believe, um, I think he'll probably miss a little more than that and actually end up around 130, 140 innings. But there really isn't much of a precedent for his injury, and there is a lack of a timetable. So I guess it's kind of anyone's guess how, how long he'll miss. Yeah, I'm going to play the optimist role and say he slightly eclipses 150 innings. I think if the timeline works out to where his workload is going to be managed in a similar way that it would have had he been healthy all year, I think that that's not really going to change any of the Diamondbacks' expectations on how many innings they would have liked him to throw this year had he never been injured. So say he only misses a month maybe he still hits that 160 mark that the Diamondbacks may have penciled in for him. I'll be optimistic and say over, not by too much, 150 innings for Zach Allen. Eloy Jimenez, obviously we've talked about him quite a bit this episode, um, and that's because primarily he tore his pectoral muscle after trying to rob a home run during a spring training game, and he's going to be sidelined for a minimum of five to six months before resuming baseball activities. Obviously, that gave way to Eddie getting him super late in the draft. So kudos to him for getting a great value during our draft. Um, obviously, he's probably not going to help in 2021, but nobody can deny that he's going to come at a steep discount in 2022 and beyond. Jake, I ask you, and I mentioned it earlier. Do you think that this injury guarantees that Eloy will strictly be a DH for the rest of his career? Uh, maybe if he was on another team. I don't think that the White Sox really have that luxury to not put him in the field. Um, they still have Jose Abreu, who's 34, and he's still he's going to be on the team for the next couple of years. 
I'm assuming he'll probably need to be shifted over to DH pretty soon. Um, I don't really anticipate Andrew Vaughn having a gold glove outfielder or being a gold glove outfielder, uh, being that I don't think he has played there as a pro yet. And uh, I believe that one of those guys they're going to need to put in the lineup and the other guy they're going to kind of need to put at DH. So I think just by that, they're sort of going to be stuck with Eloy Jimenez in the outfield. <laughs> it is fun to watch him field. Uh, yeah, if nothing else. Fun, fun is interesting. <laughs> a way to describe it. If they do decide to play him in the outfield, do you think, and I guess you probably already alluded to your answer, do you think it's going to be frequently enough to be meaningful in fantasy? I.e., do you think that they're going to get him the amount of appearances that he needs to gain outfield eligibility in fantasy early enough in the season to make a difference? Or do you think that he is Jordan 2.0 where if he does pick up eligibility, it's not going to be until the latter half of the season. I, I think he'll be, he'll still be an outfielder. I mean, I just, I just don't think the white Sox have the luxury to not have him out there. Why, why would you say that? Or why do you think that he, they would be more likely to put uh, like, a 35 or 34 year old Jose Abreu in the lineup instead of, instead of having um, Eloy in the outfield. Uh, just cause he hasn't shown the ability to play the field or keep himself healthy while doing so. That's pretty much my primary reason. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. Cause I, I see Jose Abreu as kind of a shoe in for DH now that Andrew Vaughn's up. I think that he'll kind of shift over there. If not, later this year, maybe probably within the next two years. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Vaughn handles the outfield. They only just started playing him there in spring training, and it was like at the very end of spring training. So time will tell. But I think how hard is it to play the outfield anyways? (laughs) Right. But I think that that's that (laughs) might be that might be a point for why would they this is going to sound contradictory. Why would they send Eloy out there if that's the case? Because Vaughn could just go out there and man it. And Abreu should be fine at first base, even into his age. What is he, 34 now? Age 35, 36, even maybe 37 seasons. I mean, you see Yuli Gurriel for the Astros playing first base for all these years, and they're throwing 23-year-old Jordan Alvarez into the DH, and that's pretty much where he's going to be locked in. Um. I mean, you can you can make an argument for both sides, really. It'll, I'll I'll be interested to see what they do with Eloy because he clearly has shown that he cannot play left field um, productively in terms of providing good defense, or in terms of keeping his body healthy enough to actually provide the upside of his total player profile, which is his offense. So we'll see what happens. Uh, other guys I did want to mention, there are a few other guys that have recently been placed on the injured list or expected to be placed there to open the season. Those guys include George Springer, Trent Grisham, Adalberto Mondesi, Robbie Ray, Michael Lorenzen. I'm probably missing a handful, but those were the ones that came to mind um, just recently. Uh, but moving on past injury, we're going to close our episode by talking about Sixto Sanchez. He was just option to the Marlins alternate site so that he can continue to build up his workload in preparation for his 2021 season debut. Do you think that this move of the Marlins optioning him to the alternate site implies instability 
in the Marlins management of Sixto this year? Or do you think that once they bring him up, he should be up for good, um, not miss any turns through the rotation, et cetera? Uh, there might be some instability, but I, I think that was kind of always expected coming into this year. So it doesn't really change how I view him, I guess. Um, I think that they were always going to be either I, either by putting him in the bullpen or maybe moving to a six-man rotation, maybe skipping his turn. I think that was kind of always in the cards for him. By sending him down, maybe we don't see as much of that later. So maybe this is a good thing because you know when you know he'll be when or I guess you'll know what to expect going forward with him a little more. There's less uncertainty of when he might be put into a six man or skipped or something like that. Sure. I think his career high in a professional baseball season before this, I don't even want to say before this year, but just coming into this season is 103 innings pitched. I think I saw that today. Um, but that brings me to the question of, I'm going to do the same thing I did with Gallon and set an over under for Sixto Sanchez, 140 innings pitched. Do you think he will eclipse the over, or do you think that he will remain under that, that amount this season? Uh, so we, we don't know how many innings he threw in the alternate site between the playoffs and the regular season last year, he threw 47 innings, uh, and a hundred inning increase is probably a little optimistic. So I'm going to say the under. I'm also going to say the under because he has never really gotten close to this number before in his professional career. So I am going to expect that either a, they won't let him get there if he is healthy or B. I mean, hopefully this doesn't happen, but um, Sixo Sanchez has had health issues in the past maybe something comes up that prevents him from getting there. We'll see. I would expect all of his innings to be, I should say in a collective body of work, high quality innings. So I don't really think that you have much to think about when he does get thrown on the mound, but just something for Nick to think about in terms of the amount of innings that he's going to get from six total. Anything in closing Jake, before we end episode two of the fantasy baseball edition of the best player wins podcast. Uh, I still like Cattell Marte, even at the end of the podcast. <laughs> and I would really appreciate it if the Diamondbacks would just stick Zach Allen on the IL already because there's no chance he's going to be on the season and that would make it much more convenient for everybody who has them on several of their fantasy teams. Yeah, he and a lot of a lot of players, I feel like, haven't been stuck on the IL yet. It's always a frustrating thing when certain teams put put players on the IL early before the season starts. Some don't do it until a couple hours before, but uh, keep monitoring your rosters. Keeping out for keeping your eye out for news on when these players are put on IL so that you can go out to the free agent market and scoop up two or three or four of those guys on your watch list. Uh, but for Jake Deemer, I am Nate Endries. Thank you again for listening to the second episode of our fantasy baseball podcast. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will talk to you guys next week. Here. Yeah.